save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. We're all aware of the many happenings so far of 2017 and that it feels like the world has turned sideways from the continual onslaught of bad news rippling out across the globe. Today, we're going to bring you good news from the field with my guest, Dr. Kathleen Alexander, Ph.D. and Professor at Virginia Tech, Department of Fisheries and Wildlife Conservation at the College of Natural Resources. Kathy and her husband, Dr. Mark Vanderwall, have been prior guests on Our Wild World, so listeners, please tune in to our previous episodes for further background about them both and the Center, and find them on Facebook and their website at www.caracal.info, which leads us up to today's conversation and the tremendous advances in long-term commitment and conservation that Caracal has made possible at the Biodiversity Center in Botswana, in collaboration with Virginia Tech. Caracal was founded in 2001 in recognition of the need to integrate traditional and scientific understanding of natural resources and promote partnerships between government and local communities in natural resource management. Beginning as a small wildlife rehab center in Snake Park to full-on community community educational facility with the only biohazard level 2 field laboratory of its kind in the area, and now the grand step to the Chobe Research Institute with national and global partnerships in their continuing goal of excellence to both the local communities, Chobe National Park, and Botswana in the conservation of biodiversity and a One Health perspective of people and Earth's responses are deeply interconnected systems that respond and react to ever-shifting changes. Welcome, Kathy. It's great to have you back again. It's wonderful to be here, Ellie. Thank you for having me. So a lot has changed. We had our last conversation on our wild world. So we've got a lot to cover today. So we're just going to jump in. So I guess the beginning question would be, so how is Caracal transformed, made this transformation into the research center? Well, I think one of the most key elements or the, the most pivotal moment was the recognition that We've reached a point where our research platform and the information we're getting is moved us forward. Our training program has moved us forward. Our interaction with the government of Botswana, in fact, the region, has moved us forward to a, set, to a point where we really need now to have a facility that can allow all these partners to come in and work together with us across this four-corner region where the Caracol uh, facility is located. And those four corners are... Uh, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Zambia. Okay, so that a lot is going on in that neck of the woods, and I'm sure there's a lot of influences from South Africa as well. Right, and, and I we, think one of the the issues that has been a, a key point is also the recognition that dryland systems, the kind of area that we're in, where water is a limiting resource and. A struggle to find for animals and humans alike. 
and that those environments are increasingly under threat, are sensitive, and the region where we're working really exemplifies a lot of those challenges. So what we learn there has application to 41% of the globe where dry land systems occur, and most of the population, mostly the poor, exist. And that's a reminder that Botswana is a landlocked area, and it's uh, home to one of the largest populations of elephants, I think 150 some odd thousand uh, through corridors, and there is a lively population there. And Botswana has managed to go a different direction than many other countries. You don't allow hunting, and you do allow elephants. So, um, and I, I know elephants walk down through the center of Kasani on their ways in between migrations in between uh, Chobe and elsewhere. Let's get back to a little bit more about this change and switch up to the research center. I understand the goal is to further promote and re-engage participants, youth, young adults, and everyone from around the world and your partners into a new understanding or a better understanding of the aesthetics and wonder and awe that is earth and nature in these interconnected global systems science. This is something we discussed in uh, one of our episodes called The Future is Here and One Health. So maybe we could do just a little bit about what that means and then get into some of the projects and the partnerships that you're working on now. Well, I, I, I think um, you've done a wonderful introduction. I, it's really interesting to take a step back from it, and I think that's what you're suggesting. Where are we in the scheme of things, and why is the Chubby Research Institute necessary? What is it going to bring to the table, to the region that's not already there? And what we're trying to do is change the notion of how research should be conducted. That research isn't a bunch of scientists publishing papers, but rather it's partnership and service. What does a system need to sustain itself, to sustain wildlife populations, the communities that live there, um, the regional population and all the differences in culture and need? What's needed there? We need to know that systems are changing so rapidly that in some cases systems have degraded before people even realize that they've lost the services that they need. So we're trying to take that research vision and say how do you bring it into society? How do you bring it into government, allowing them to make decisions from evidence that has been produced by your research? How do you infuse what you've learned in your research into the school so that your young leaders are advocates, knowledgeable advocates about their area, not with a conservation message that comes from the United States, but with a message and an understanding relevant to their very environment, infused with their culture, their understanding, their priorities. So mixing education, outreach, research into a service platform and developing a facility, the Chevy Research Institute, which would allow that to happen, is really the larger vision here, to change the way we conduct research to being one of how do you secure a future for a region. That's huge. So when you say the systems, you're talking about, um, and the the changes, we're talking about climate effects, we're talking about water, we're talking about wildlife, and how all this integrates and affects through a living, moving system on the people. Once again, people are a large part of what conservation is about. If we didn't have people, we probably wouldn't need conservation. So that 
message of conservation with the big C has kind of gotten lost over these this last generation or so. It seems like everybody takes conservation for granted, but we haven't really done a really good deep definition of what conservation means other than it's these parts of somehow preserving something. So part of this re-engagement through your community center and giving them science that works for them, that they understand that is not a dry, unemotional language, and re-engage their connectivity to nature. We're trying to repurpose or re-engage, re-imagine what conservation is. And this reminds me of one time Mark had said, the have and the have-nots. In the Western world, we typically think the haves are those with money and the have-nots are those that are poor. And he pointed out that there's a whole other side to have and have-nots. Those who have nature surrounding them, live with it, are affected by it, and can be effective with it, and those who don't have nature around them. Right, and I think that actually is a, a key element that how do you actually take the knowledge, the needs, and the priorities of those people that have that resource and use that as the driver for the research agenda? So that instead of um, leading the whole process, your platform, your outcomes, your uh, streams of information are a large part conducted in partnership with communities. Now, it often sounds very hand-wavy. People talk about working with communities all the time. But how do we change that from a sounding nice, kind of a, a, a flowery attribute to research to a practical one? Ultimately, what people need and their problems and the way that they engage their environment and the way in which their environment influences them is going to be something that they understand intimately and in a way that no one else can. Give, and us, an, give us an example, a brief example. Well, here's, a, here's an example. There's always been this idea that if we have pit latrines for everyone, we will uh, provide uh, the necessary sanitation to protect children. And I believe that too. I, I was very, I was on, on board with the Millennium Development Goals. Pit latrines are a major, you know, if you don't have anything, pit latrines are great. They really help us make a step forward. And, and that was an important goal. However, when we were working with our households, and I had uh, 30 households in a study trying to look at, at the influence of flies on health, amongst a myriad of other projects, which we'll get into, I was putting up these pit latrine, uh, fly traps on all the pit latrines. And I noticed that um, there was a lot of waste around the pit latrines, not in the pit latrine, but outside the pit latrine. And I went to the owner of the household, usually they were females because we have a high level of female-headed households in Botswana, and I asked them what was going on, and they said, well, you know, children can't use pet latrines. Well, you know, when you think about it, it's obvious, but if you don't, if, you, if it's not part of your life, it's difficult to appreciate that. And they said, you know, kids are terrified, terrified to use a pet latrine, and they won't go in until they're seven years old, six years old, and use it because it's so scary. And what they do is they'll use the area around the pit latrine. Now, why that was so significant is that I had done this work in the hospital at an outbreak, and we'd asked people questions. And one of the key factors that predicted diarrhea in a household was that they had someone else in the household with diarrhea. And we thought, well, that's because people weren't washing their hands and so on, a standard, a standard response to continued diarrhea in a household. 
But after this, after hearing from people who it's their problem, I realized that it probably wasn't just that. In part, it was probably the fact that if you have sick children that are using the garden because they're afraid of the only sanitation device they have, a pit latrine, that flies are more likely to spread that in the household. Now that's a, a very, there's conservation examples there, this is a public health example, but it's a really clear one that everyone can understand, and that is that if it's something that's happening to me, I can tell you about it, but you may, given your lifestyle and where you come from and what you do, be completely unaware of it, as I was in this particular example. Now we know that there's a really important need to address this sanitation problem for children. But before that, this really wasn't even on a horizon. Well, it makes a difference, and it reminds me of the recent film Arrival, that if you want to get to a point to ask why an alien is here, you first have to break down the language and find out, introduce yourself, and be able to ask a question and know that they're understanding you're asking a question to be able to get an answer that is relevant to the response you're seeking. Right. And you had also, um, on a previous episode, discussed the um, malarial outbreaks and the cholera outbreaks during flood seasons because you're right up against the Chobe River and how wildlife uses the river and how that river passes through into the community and how the community uses the river. We've got several things going on. So... Um, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. So how did you address this particular example that you just gave us? Well, I think what, one of the important things there was to talk to the, the households, get their impression, but in a quantitative way, so that we could put that together in a way that people could evaluate its authenticity. So it's not just Kathy coming and telling somebody that this is a problem, but actually learning something collecting the data that would be necessary to then share it within the Ministry of Health and then and the district health team and the, and the um, doctors in the hospital and the chiefs and say, okay, here's a problem. So, for example, we then had a workshop with the community, which was everything from the doctors and the nurses and the teachers and the chiefs and the uh, Red Cross, everybody who was there community representatives, government, NGO, and we presented all these problems. And we said, here's a problem. What do you think cumulatively as a group? What, who are the actors here that can help us resolve this problem? So we have, we have a, an issue that's raised because we have connection and are talking to and asking communities about their problems. We then use that to collect data to verify that that is an issue. And a lot of it is observational. We see an outbreak of diarrheal disease or increased diarrhea in the household, for example, and we can relate it potentially to this risk. But we then take it back into a community environment with governments, uh, with government departments, as well as uh, the chiefs, and we say, what can we do then? Where's the solution lie? And then everybody comes together and we use different, what we call participatory techniques, which allow each of these different sectors to contribute something to that. And at the end of the day, we then say, well, have we a conclusion that we can say, here's the recommendation to government with everybody having participated? And that's exactly what we did recently under an EU-funded project where we actually had a workshop and we said, here, this is what we found. What should we do and who are the actors? And we put out a report. I presented it to the Ministry of Health. We're working with different government offices to try to affect change, more dustbins. How do we deal with children 
who don't can't access a pit latrine. Um, in part, I, I'm going to back up a little bit, is that I held a bunch of Kotla meetings with uh, the communities themselves and said, what are the options for us? And the women said things like, you know, this is really important because we have to leave our children alone at home. And so sometimes they'll play with things and they will get, you know, it's dangerous, it's not healthy, we don't know how to protect them. And, and we came up with a few ideas with the mothers. Uh, what if we had a big plastic sheet that we could put in that had a smaller hole that could be clipped down and cleaned? And would that answer the problem? And so on and so forth. At the end of the day, I think that it's these partnerships that move across scale from, from talking to the mother who's worried about her child or the farmer who's worried about the elephant in his field, moving up to understanding the structures that protect and, and govern his life up to government that's making decisions across sectors with financial uh, implications to decisions and then trying to take research so that it's 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 functional it does something it says here here is the evidence that you can interpret for yourself to say this is what we choose to do based on this information and that's how I see I see science needing to be transformed where you know you have all these scientists running around doing research and some of it by necessity is so complicated, it would always be a very uh, very isolated, you know, it's not going to be intermeshed with communities. But there's other types of research that definitely can be and should be. Kathy, this is just fascinating. So right now we do have to take a short break and we're going to come back and we're going to learn more about how we implement conservation from a top level, including the local communities, because that is key and learn some more about what the Chobe Research Institute is doing. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary beautiful predators are in danger without them our rivers dry up our forests don't grow our communities go hungry our biodiversity crumbles wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems the wild effect it's in our hands ellie founded wild eyes foundation because she loves africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Dr. Kathy Alexander. And at the end of the first section, we were providing some examples of what many of us in the West take for granted, sanitation, to the completely different lifestyle and um, situation and surroundings that Kathy and her teams are working with in a rural area in Botswana, for example, or other places across Africa. So, Kathy, how does this all come together in terms of what the Institute versus the Biodiversity Center now becoming the Research Institute, how does this tie it all together and who are you working with? Well, the Research Institute is going to be a slightly separate entity from the Biodiversity Center. Um, And it will focus on trying to transform this business of research. How do we do it in a way that's integrating across these different scales? And part of that, for example, has been to develop memorandums of understanding with key departments in the Botswana government. If we really want research to be impactful, to change things, to be worth the investment that we make, both time and monetarily, how do you do that instead of it just being a paper that goes in a journal? How do you change it? So what I've done is I've reached out to the government of Botswana and and I'm working now with the Ministry of Environment and they're very progressive and we have signed a memorandum of understanding where we will provide data directly, our raw data, not my paper or my summary or my recommendations, my raw data can be used by government for their own purposes. Now I can guide that, I can tell them what we found from our analysis, but they can use it as part of their own repository of information, as part of their own monitoring. Part of that is that we will work with each of these departments, forestry, waste management, Department of Environmental Affairs, Department of Wildlife and National Parks, providing information, guidance and input to all four of those departments under the ministry in a, in a real, real context. Here's the data, this is what it's saying, we can give you this other data, what kind of queries do you want to do? And that's that, what business are you into? What do you have to do? What does the Department of Waste Management have to do? It has to try to identify spills in the water, clean them up, keep communities protected. We can provide raw water quality data to them and say, here it is. You can use our data to monitor the river every two weeks because we're doing it already for research, but you can use it as part of your monitoring. We are doing camera traps. Uh, collecting camera trap data on carnivores across the riverfront. We'll give you that data. We'll do it in partnership with you so you can monitor your predator populations over time, start asking questions about development impacts, etc. We will give all of our data to you as well as our interpretation from the research questions we're asking. But what it is is then a real partnership, I hope. And that's part of the research institute that I'm really excited about. I want to see some biologists from the Department of Wildlife and National Parks um, come to Virginia Tech, which is what we're going to do. Um, Come and work side by side with us in a lab so that we can offer wet space lab to, lab space to the government who, and in an area where they would never have it. So that instead of it always being a foreign entity undertaking research, and by the way, Caracol is a dominant 
a citizen-run entity. But instead of having foreign researchers go to another country like Botswana, we say, how do we partner with Botswana to develop the capacity and the knowledge that they have with the technical know-how that might be brought in from outside so that we advance effectively the capacity of the country itself, not of any researcher by itself or by themselves. So this is a huge step. It's called what I like to call inclusionary versus exclusionary. And uh, I think this is the wave or the mode or the reorientation that conservation of today to moving into the future under all these current challenges and pressures both people, wildlife, and environment, and Earth are facing is we have to, keyword collaborate. And rather than keep all this stuff, as you said, in a dusty journal on a shelf where it's a bunch of charts and language that your average community person couldn't understand, make it um, relevant and also replicable across many departments to utilize this data in a variety of ways. Right. And hopefully doing that means that you're amplifying the outcome of anything that you're attempting to achieve. So decisions, you know, a research finding may say that it's important to do X because of B. But if it, if it just stays there, if that's all that ever happens, and it never gets into any other hands so that, that we transform our decision-making or our thinking or our priorities for problem-solving, what, uh, what really is the value of doing it? Um, so I think there's a huge push and there's a huge recognition of need for transdisciplinary research that engages the reality of the situation and, and contributes to um, the ability of people who live and own the problem to make informed decisions and prioritize what they feel is necessary for their country, for their community, for their household. And that's a, that is a huge statement right there. And I think Mark had said this uh, previously in one of our early conversations that we recognize a problem, but and, and typically we've sent that solution or research or the problem up the chain. And uh, But the thing that we must do and what it sounds like you're doing and implementing and, and going further is not just recognize the problem, but taking ownership of the problem and then you and ownership in uh, participating in the solutions of the problem and then implementing in a collaborative way the solutions to the problem. I think so. And I, 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 I think I've mentioned this before to you and I know that you have expressed a similar sentiment is that I've always been humbled about how much I don't know. Yes. And as I get older, the recognition that it's just not possible for any one person or any entity, any university, any group of people, any any anybody to think that they really have the answer for other people. And there is no one answer. I think we've learned enough that science and solutions, it is not a one-size-fits-all uh, package. We have to be sensitive and cognizant of the various areas and the challenges that are faced and the history of the local communities. I mean, after all, they've lived in these areas for generations, if not centuries longer than we, the NGOs and the Western concept of conservation have. And they do have possibly some simplified solutions that will make an important 
contribution to adding in the current research data and the changes that are going on? Well, I think so. And I, one of the, it reminds me, because you remember that I, for, for your viewers, I used to work for the Department of Wildlife and National Parks. And there would always be these visitors from the United States who would, would come to my office expecting that I wasn't an American and offer solutions with not even really understanding what the problem was for the communities of the area. And I think it, it, uh, it really shocked me in the sense that I needed to never let that happen in the work that we did. That I think we, that's very important because so many ecotourism, voluntourism of today, since this has become such a thing in not only the, the donor world and the philanthropic world, that you know we're going to come and teach something. Not that we don't have anything to teach, but we have to be open to learning. I think so, and that's what I'm really excited about doing as well, is pairing, um, in terms of training of undergraduates and graduate students, working, having them the opportunity, giving them the opportunity to work with Botswana, who have a tremendous amount to teach uh, and, and to share about um, cultural ways of balancing, uh, you know, uh, societal stresses. There's a, a lot of wonderful cultural attributes to Botswana uh, people and the way they manage problems, but also their understanding of the environment and the challenges that, that come with living um, in a diverse landscape with different types of, of, of um, housing and so on. And, and allowing students to see what that's like, getting to work in that environment, but also then allowing uh, Botswana students to learn from American students. So everybody has something to give. And how do we maximize all the strengths across different cultures and, and, and different environments so that we can bring humanity together, whatever level that is, um, and, and however small anyone's effort is, how do you bring people together across divergent cultures to derive convergent solutions. And that's what I see the Institute doing in partnership with Caracol and Virginia Tech. How do we bring innovation together with grassroots knowledge and work together with partners that span government to other researchers across the universities uh, to look towards tomorrow's solutions for today? And that's a very big change right there, looking for tomorrow's solutions, where typically, historically, um, Africa, African villages, we always saw it as they were living for today. The just if I can survive today, I'll think about tomorrow if I wake up. But right. we've been able over this these last generations, due to a lot of help and research from Western NGOs and a new model of incorporating local communities to expand that present to include a bit longer term view and uh, and and also I think at the bottom of that that's changed a fundamental core vision of the locals there is a future well and I think I think that's also one thing that's really interesting is that Africa is no longer the same governments you look at the Botswana government it's a strong government it's a financially sound government it's a it's a democracy uh, it's there's minimal corruption and there is d deep concern and care about the people and the environment. I, I must say, Botswana government's commitment to the environment surpasses that of the United States, very much so. Oh, I so agree with that. So we, we aren't really anymore, I think we all need to learn from each other. 
and we need to uh, pick up where we need to. Can we learn from Botswana to improve the way we do business here? Can Botswana pick up what they need from us and so on? And it's that cooperation and that recognition that, that everyone brings something to the table. And if we, can, if we can see all of those benefits and those opportunities and amalgamate them in some way, we have the, the power to, uh, we, we synergize all of it and amplify the outcome. And again, that's kind of what I'm hoping, that's the vision I have for the Chevy Research Institute. Virginia Tech infused with Caracol staff, infused with community and government, working side by side with people so that we learn together and that the information is used together in a real way. Because I mean, I've spent 20 years working in Africa and I think we have the partnerships and Botswana is the perfect environment to frame I hope such a transformative partnership between an NGO and government in, a, in an environment where there's so much opportunity and if managed correctly could lead to so much uh, to learn for everyone. Well this is again another huge statement is that we are all life on this one blue ball floating in space and historically we have carved it up into boundaries, colonialism, a military approach and have consistent consistently left out the local communities as an add-on and then tried to implement things onto them without, as, you're, as we've been discussing, a deeper understanding of who, who the players are, the stakeholders, and how things can be reoriented. We could use the word change. Sometimes it is a big change, but mostly it can be a reorientation as we broaden our mental landscape to include more information that is gathered by all the interested parties in stakeholders in creating a life moving forward that includes all players, wildlife, the environment, the water, the ministries, the government, the researchers, and the people. Right. I agree with you. So where do we go next on this? We've got a couple minutes for this section. What is um, one of the current things you're working on that brings into this this new institute, one of the institute's new projects? Well, one of the things that we, as you know, I, what we've tried to do is say, here's this really diverse system, and, and let me back up a sentence to say, the dryland systems, again, are really challenging because it's, you know, drought and no water, or lots of rain and lots of water, and it's that extreme of livelihoods where people have to adjust to, to such an incredible changes in the environment, and so do wildlife that we're working on projects that look at trying to identify where are human and environmental systems coupled? And if we understood that, could we begin to manage problems where things become decoupled or where uh, effects on one affect the other in a way that is not sustainable? And that's where we're working at now. We have a project funded by the National Science Foundation aimed at trying to understand dry land systems and their coupled dynamics from antibiotic resistance movement across the landscape and uh, across animals and wildlife to human disease outcomes like diarrheal disease outbreaks in children. Can we take those different elements and start to understand how we're linked across the system to the environment and how what we do influences the environment and in turn influences us. And with knowing that, what could we do better? I love that phrase, coupling. And I think that we're going to have to take a break here, but I would love to start um, when we re-engage here with a better understanding of that term coupling, because I'm not sure. We talked about it in a previous episode, but let's 
carry that a little bit further and give us some examples of that. So, listeners, stick with us. Check out www.caracal.info. Find Caracal on Facebook. Find Our Wild World on Facebook and Wild Eyes Foundation. And stick with us because we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Streaming live The leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World We want to hear from you Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back with my guest, Dr. Kathy Alexander. And you're listening to Ellie Weiss with Wild Eyes Foundation and Our Wild World. So one of the things that we've talked about consistently on this program is how interconnected so many things are. And the goal of 2017 and a lot of our program is to help people put this together in a new mental framework and reframe so that we can address these rapid changes that are happening to people and our earth and uh, I don't want to use the word battle but deal with climate change and the real effects where we live so Wild Eyes has been a longtime supporter of Caracal Biodiversity Center we started out with a small little project of moving the snake park and a mongoose study and that grew into something tremendous and we've continued to follow with Caracal because the whole point of Wild Eyes is to recognize projects that have an incredible potential to help shift and re reframe the future 
So, Kathy, tell us if tell us a little about where this this relationship migrated from your point of view. Well, I have to say that um, I really admire you personally because um, you know you're the power behind it all, and I have to say your deep commitment is something that that um, I found really resonated with me and and was really inspiring because you believe a lot of people really love animals or they love people or they want to do things with people but they don't necessarily like both and uh, they don't necessarily want to invest in things that recognize the need for both Um, but you did and you were committed to that idea that everybody's valuable that uh, you as well as much as you might love lions and wild dogs and so on that the communities there are equally and perhaps more valuable because they will determine whether or not there are any animals, including communities, that can persist in a healthy state. So your support, initial support, was key because you cared about having a place where children would come and learn, having a place where we could bring uh, people together to discuss and look towards a future um, where problems could be addressed with information, and advancing the, the goals of CARICOL, which was to support um, development and sustainability a natural resource use in Chobe. And that, that was what was wonderful, is that Wild Eyes' idea or vision of this more integrated, broader platform, that it's not focusing on the, the big and hairies, but it's this, how do you bring it all together so you have something at the end of the day? Well, the investment that Wild Eyes made developed the Caracol Biodiversity Center. It was the, the first step in developing on a 20-hectare land uh, area that we had the first facility, and it has been the powerhouse of everything we've done. It has been where we have the laboratory that the initial money developed uh, with input from Virginia Tech is where we have conducted all the research that then attracted um, support from the National Science Foundation, from the EU, from various other entities. So it's it's that uh, vision of yours, I think, that allowed the doors to open for everything from the 3,000 to 4,000 children we see a year at Caracol to now with other donors such as the National Science Foundation 2,000 children a week that we provide conservation education to in wow. addition to the research so so it's really it's opened the door to I, I, I hope a, a lasting legacy of, of um, support and vision and sharing that I hope will change people's lives I think it already has changed the landscape in a positive way and engaged government in a partnership that is really, um, I think, transformative. And our long history in the region, the partnership with you and with other entities, I think have allowed us to do something really different. So I'm deeply grateful to Wild Eyes because it wasn't really, uh, you know, that was the first laboratory offices and classroom that were built with support from Wild Eyes. And obviously a natural partner for now developing a Chobe Research Institute where we actually have space, we do, we actually are doing research hand in hand with Botswana so that it is, that we can provide the framework, not only from the standpoint of, of guidance and expertise, but also a physical location. Um, Their the larger vision as well, I, you know, I'd love to see us be able to do uh, online training where we can provide laboratory training and online coursework. How do you provide educational opportunities to remote communities who will never have money to travel to South Africa? who may never be selected 
to go and work at, or to, to attend a university in Botswana? How do you provide training so that you can develop uh, laboratory technicians who might be deaf, for example? Um, how do you develop training for people who could be uh, any work anywhere in terms of animal handling or uh, research technicians? There are so many things and so many opportunities everywhere from graduate students to you know, people who might have technical training and be able to fit that, see a place for themselves in that uh, research environment, either that they're training other people and educating children, such as our nine interns that are all from different communities in our district who are then training uh, kids in their school, that's part of our larger educational program, to working hand-in-hand with uh, Botswana citizens here at Virginia Tech in our laboratory. So it, it's that first, um, uh, you know, that real, really important support that came from Wildeyes that made all this possible, really. Well, thank you so much for that. That brings a big smile to my face because, as we've talked, it's been a rather distressing 2017 and trying to figure out what the next wild idea is and um, perhaps that it, that's not necessary. What it is is going back to the basics and rebuilding and reframing, as I've said before, how we're going to address and reorient for this, let's call it conservation 3.0. It's a, it's a new world out there. And um, it, it, I mean, it's a new political landscape. It's a new human landscape. And we're feeling pressures from what we've done. And we have to transfer this information and think in the bigger picture. And that's one of my skills. I've always been able to think of the bigger picture and how can we connect these dots to make it replicable um, elsewhere and bring in more and more people of the local uh, communities. Because without them, we're not going to accomplish anything. I've always said conservation is about people. And if we don't include the people who live in this landscape with wildlife and are facing the the changes from climate, the changes from drought, and all the effects that are we are at the whim of, those things we can't control, if we have the ability to understand what we can do within that, then the opportunities are boundless. I think so. And I think it's that, you know, there's a, I, I, there's a saying, you know, if you keep doing what you keep doing, you keep getting what you keep getting. Right. And I always remind myself of that. What do we need to do differently so that we really change things? And I think first and foremost, it's changing the way universities interact with um, foreign countries so that we develop these partnerships with Caracol, for example, and we prioritize a local grassroots approach to conducting research in a, in a world-renowned academic institution like Virginia Tech and scaling down and scaling up change. And I think I feel incredibly humbled and, and gifted in the opportunity I had with working for an African government and learning so much from everybody that I worked with to understanding really how things get done and how do we change the narrative so that instead of um, things, you know, preaching to the choir kind of thing, how do we transform the landscape? And I'm committed to the idea that it begins with uh, understanding where people are locally and what their views are, and then infusing that with what we know and can know from science. So, for example, also recognition of the important and powerful role that communities have 
we started with the Ministry of Environment and the minister in particular, um, Minister Kama. He's a, a very innovative person and I've, I've really enjoyed working with him. And what we have now is, is called Wildlife Ambassadors. And I wanted to find a way, how do we develop advocacy? Advocacy is a really interesting, usually a Western thing for wildlife, right? How do you develop advocacy in local communities for wildlife? Well, you have to start when kids are little um, so that it's something that they can be recognized for, that, that there's pride in being an advocate and that you have power being an advocate, that, that you mean something if you're fighting for wildlife. If, you, if we, we need to develop the same kids that we, we all grew up as, watching National Geographic and Loving Lions, how do you do that in, in an environment where the, the safety issues are different, the priorities are different? Well, we had a, the schools involved and we got the teachers involved. We're working with uh, the principal education officer in the Ministry of Education, uh, Mankolali, who's also a real innovator. And, we have uh, we had all of the kids uh, write essays on what do they think are the most important conservation things that we need to be doing and the teachers themselves graded all of those essays and picked from each school a wildlife ambassador that wildlife ambassador is gets a medal and is the ambassador for wildlife for their school for the whole year and they get recognized there's somebody important they sit in on committee committee meetings and already you've changed the narrative in, at, on this and you want you get a child who now is, realizes that they have a voice. They can say something about wildlife. It's it's uh, it's it's recognized as a valuable thing to fight for wildlife. It's recognized in the school as something that's worth considering, and it grows up across that. So you may start on one side with research, but you have to start on the other side with with um, bringing to the table all the things that people as individuals need. We need recognition, we need a job, we need health, we need to have safety. How do we take all of that and then engage what we need to have sustainability? And how does research supply as a service and fill in all the gaps? And how do we then empower all the stakeholders, including government? And I hope and believe our research institute can do that. Others are doing it in their locations. Um, we will bring our special flavor and all of the help of Wild Eyes and other um, you know, partners, technical partners that we have to really trying to change that landscape and uh, thinking more about the recipient rather than the research, if that makes sense. And you bring up an important point. You know, we here in the West, we've had hundreds of years to do research about our relationship to the landscape, uh, conservation, resource maintenance, land management, resource sustainability, and how to live with wildlife. We here in the West don't have the wildlife Africa has. And in the last several generations, I'm going to say 50 to 100 years, that model of conservation, the wildlife is more important than the people. I think we often made enemies of the very people we needed to, um, must include in any answer and solution of how to live in a landscape with wildlife. And typically a lot of the response from African people is it's not about loving animals. It's about being able to survive and make a living in a landscape where the rest of the world loves your wildlife. Right. So it's reorienting a frame set to, to understand the modern understanding through all of our mistakes of the importance of this wildlife to the ecosystem, therefore their very survival. I agree with you. And I think, 
Uh, Caracol and our work there has spanned now 20, more than 20 years, but 16 years for Caracol. I think that we, we keep being reminded of the importance of taking that perspective. And I think it's critical as we move forward to understand that if people don't feel that they're in charge of their life at some level, they will do whatever is required to gain that control. And so you have to deal with people and you have to engage. And we all do. We all deal with our own lives, right? We all fight for whatever it is we need. So we need to then understand what are the requirements that people have and how do we provide the necessary support so that we can have sustainable livelihoods across complex landscapes, across um, cities in transition, across changing climates and political landscapes. What's the lasting solution? Well, there's no perfect answer. But I'm sure that there's no answer if we're not working with the right people. There's no answer if we just don't do it. And we continue to persist in, as you said a minute ago, doing the same thing over and over again with less and less positive results. So this is the move, and I've talked about this many times over the the course of these episodes, that we have to rethink how we're going to live on a rapidly changing earth and a a rapidly burgeoning human population that is putting wildlife and ecosystems and landscapes under pressures they've never felt before. So without including everybody who has a skill, a desire, and a knowledge set into working on the various solutions to provide uh, answers that are part of the puzzle to each place, then and as you had said that each person the individual does have a lot of power when they are allowed or given the opportunity to participate in their future and be a stakeholder so that is one of the biggest differences that conservation now must face conservation with a small c not this whole sort of hijacked idea of that it's a product that it's an ecotourism that it's about the safari goer and about the high-end donor every individual has an opportunity to make an impact on what happens to the future of our world i agree with you and it's it's not there's no easy answers and it's going to be messy but we have to, uh, and we can't, you know, we won't just talk about it, right? We have to actually develop models where people are integrated in a way that they can contribute. And not everybody's going to get what they want, right? But if we recognize what those needs are and wh- what is the need versus the want and what can the system provide versus what it can't and how do we find that balance, that's really the key element. And that's where I think research and partnerships provide the platform on which to identify balance. And if we take it down to the basic thing that we all want to live on Earth and continue on, people in a biodiverse world that has aesthetic value, not just monetary value, not just wildlife, landscape, um, agriculture, whatever, benefit uh, a, a unit of monetization to people, that there is something to be said about the raw aesthetic awe and wonder of what earth is it's magnificent it's beautiful and we need to reconnect and engage with that so that we can all be a part of this future and i do think it's a positive future i do think there's so much opportunity absolutely we have to if we think of it any other way then we might as well not get out of bed in the morning 
So um, I, I thank you so much, Kathy. This has been a fabulous conversation. I hope our listeners uh, come away with the same inspiration and sense of hope that there is a lot we can do. There is a lot to be done. And meanwhile, go out and take a look at our wild world and think about your place in this and what you can do. So thank you, Kathy. It's been a wonderful conversation. Wonderful to join you. And tune in again next week for Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.